Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. Greece and Rome, and they invite you to celebrate with them. Welcome to Voice of Olympus. Greetings and welcome to Voice of Olympus. I am Hercules Invictus, and today we start off our show with Starfleet Adventures and leading us into that territory in outer space and in our own minds and our creativity is Admiral Bob Bostler of the USS Challenger. Greetings and welcome, Admiral Bob. How are you? Doing great and glad to be back here again. I'm glad that you're here uh, as well. We always have such great uh, conversations, and uh, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing about uh, your impressions about the new Picard show. I've heard it announced several times in different locations. Yes, we've gotten to see a few photographs as well on uh, social media. So we can talk about that and and see where we could uh, read into those photographs and see what 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 might be happening so if i understand correctly this does not take place exactly in the same universe uh, that uh, the star trek the next generation shows and movies uh, took place in but this is another iteration of picard no actually it's supposed to take place in what is considered star trek prime but it's oh, great. taking okay. place roughly uh around the real real-time period between Nemesis, which is the last time we saw the Enterprise crew, the last time we saw Picard, and uh, after the events of uh, that we saw in the 2009 Star Trek J.J. Uh, Abrams movie with the destruction of the planet Romulus, well, not, you know, the, their, their, home, their, their home world. Um, so that has something to do with it. The picture that I saw on social media, there was actually two, but one that was really close up, had Picard in what looked like kind of a civilian civilian attire, but he was Uh at either Starfleet headquarters or Starfleet Academy headquarters. And, um, you know, this is is now 20 years after the fact of, of Nemesis, 
and in real uh, time too. In real time as as well. Um, and you know, and he's you know he's looking older uh, because he is, and uh-huh. uh, and there's a number of uniformed. Uh, either they're Starfleet officers or they're Starfleet cadets. Now, what we, you know, my first impression and and, and other people as well were were guessing that well maybe they've tweaked the uniforms yet again, and these uniforms looked looked like a hybrid of the Deep Space Nine, the original Deep Space Nine uniforms with the the colors on the shoulders, uh, because there was yellow, there was red, and you know there was probably blue there somewhere too. Uh-huh. Um, but instead of the collar, you know, the, the gray collars where the pips were, instead there were the next generation type collar, uh, you know, uh, cup collars, whatever you want to call them. So, uh, someone reminded me on this thread that, you know, then they, they showed me a picture of, uh, the Starfleet cadet uniforms, uh, from around the time that Wesley was a cadet. Uh, you okay. know, the episode where, where he gets himself in trouble because they they do this, I don't know, Borealis cluster or, you know, Starburst or whatever it was called. Um, and uh, and he, um, you know, he gets himself in trouble. And you get to see what the cadets are wearing. And it is somewhat similar to, to that attire. And the uh, the people that were in the photograph – um, did seem to be rather young. So it's very possible that, you know, if, if we really want to play the, the guessing game, um, that Picard could be um, at Starfleet, of what is now Starfleet Academy. There's also, there's a shot of, of, of what looks like a pad with a um, modified, it, says, it clearly says Starfleet on it, and it's the you know the usual arrowhead uh, emblem. However, it's not. Uh-huh. It's got the circle around it, uh, but it has the line through it as well, which almost makes it look like you know it, it was inspired by the the new Discovery com badges. Uh, but it has you know um, uh, it it does say Starfleet uh, on it, but. Uh, we don't know what that means. It doesn't say Starfleet Academy. Uh, we don't know where, you know, what, what this is. But Picard is there. You can't really tell from his expression what could be possibly going on. But he's standing there in this black and kind of purplish or navy blue kind of attire. It looks, to me, it looks civilian-like. There's, he wasn't wearing a com badge. And he wasn't wearing any, you know, kind of uniform. But uh, there are clearly... Uh, uniformed officers there or, you know, Starfleet members. So uh, whether they're cadets or if this is yet uh-huh. another rendition of, of, of you know, of a, of a new uniform type, um, you know, but it would, if, if so, it's very much uh, a hybrid of uh, the original Deep Space Nine and Next Gen. Um mm. So but I guess we'll have to wait and see. And uh, I didn't see any old Star Trek Picard. Is that correct? Yes, yes, it is. Which I I think is a rather uninspired title. I I kind of liked when months ago when I was when I un, unfortunately uh, 
misreported, you know, uh, what I thought was a, uh, an actual CBS uh, All Access um, uh, report um, because it had the logo on it. So I thought it was legit, but it was actually a picture of, um, you know, a Picard with a bit of a goatee, but he was wearing the, the, the nemesis uniform and it was called Star Trek Destiny, which I thought was a pretty cool title. Uh, which would be, you know, still very appropriate for a, a Picard series. But, nope, this one is simply called Star Trek Picard, So, which is also appropriate in its own way, just a little bit boring now. Um, uh-huh. But because that's, that's what it's about. Uh, and this is the first time that, that we've seen a Star Trek series that focuses, almost, you know, exclusively on one character. Uh, we've never quite seen this before, but but again, oh. CBS Soul Access is experimenting. There, you know, originally uh, Discovery was supposed to be a one-off. You know, it was going to be one season, and they were going to do an anthology, and then the next season we were going to see something else entirely. But because it's it, it was popular, um, you know, they kept it, and and now we're into season two, and we're going to get season three. So um, oh, that's good to hear. Yep, yep, that was that was uh, confirmed, and we're supposed to see Picard either towards uh, the end of 2019 or early 2020. Wow. So, um, yeah, so I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm 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 sure everybody is, and it's our first you know look back at uh, you know the the prime universe well just uh, uh, discovery rather is supposed to be the prime universe but it's almost hard to think of it as the prime universe because it just looks too ultra modern um, right you know as, as a prequel I, I you know we say this every every show that we we're on we're like it's it's a good show it's well written in my opinion however the it's only failing i think is that it certainly just doesn't look you know like they, they didn't want to go retro. It just looks way too elaborate. You know, it's almost like a reimagining. Uh, yes. And especially you know, since since they've shown you know what the what the Enterprise looks like. You know, the uh, ten years before Kirk's mission. You know, or or which just doesn't add up. You know, it just. Um, I've heard the reimagining argument also, but uh, Battlestar Galactica re-envisioned did go, uh, yeah, they they did make the ship look like something from an earlier uh, era, except it flew through outer space. So it could have been done. It's been done before. Yeah. Well, I mean, in Battlestar Galactica, it was a a total reimagining. I mean, we had characters with different, you know, familiar characters with different genders, you know, and and backstories and the whole tone of that show was different, and I'm not and I'm not saying that I disliked it. I I very much enjoyed the new Galactica, but I still have a very special fondness for the original Galactica. Me too. Um, so and I and I I know that you know it was produced decades apart from each other, and you know our our way of telling stories, uh, you know, has 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 evolved. Um, Earlier this month, uh, just a, you know, uh, was it last was it last week at this time maybe? Because um, the month is just blowing by. Um, yes, members please. of my my group, including my wife, you know, uh, we went and saw the Star Trek Deep Space Nine documentary 
um, oh, wow. uh, what they what they leave behind. It was uh, it's only it was only in uh, selected theaters through the Fathom event, and um, and it was only there for one for for one night. It was uh, if, if, on the the thirteenth. So um, we got we went and saw it, and it was it was a good recruiting opportunity too, because there I was in the audience handing out. Uh-huh. Uh, cards and you know and stuff like that, but it really was a fantastic documentary. It was very well done. It was a lot of fun too. It wasn't like your typical documentary where, you know, you just talk about the the development of the show. I mean, it featured all the people, all the cast in it. In fact, they you know they were doing some singing, you know, as a as a takeoff on you know the. Uh, James Darren's character, you know, of, of the, the hologram character. And he, they, they had them all there. They were interviewing them, but they were also having a lot of fun with this, joking around. Um, you know, it was, it was just very well done. And, in, um, you know, and, and they, they later on, they did a post-documentary roundtable where all the head writers uh, and people involved with the production sat there and talked more. Now, I got to admit that was one part of it that was a little boring because they seemed to be obsessed with the idea of talking about how much footage they went to get high definition and the and the <laughs> complexity of going to get those film negatives and then trying to make it high de- dense you know uh, high definition for the big screen and while this was all fascinating to them I think the audience was sitting there like yeah, that's nice, but we really don't care. We got to see it. That's, you know, we don't really care about that backstory. That's um, an extra that the, you put on the DVD, not uh, in the feature. Yeah, yeah. They didn't need to really even show that into the theater. However, within the body of the documentary, not only did the documentary look back at at the show and, you know, its strengths and, and things that were going on at that time in the cast and all that, but it also proposed um, a a fictional eighth season and how they would do a sequel, how they would do Deep Space Nine, you know, 20, 25 years later. Um, and they came up with a wonderful script, and it was done. They, they There was artwork, almost like the storyboards of a comic book, um, we're, we're done to show uh, Kira, you know, uh, now now the religious leader of Bajor, um, uh-huh. an older nun, an, an older nun who was in command of a of a ship uh, that you know that was defiant class. Um, they showed uh, you know Jake as he as he looked now, you know. Uh, as the as the actor, and you know, they they showed him, uh, you know, everybody, and it was really a good, you know, script. And and what was really cool was uh, even Esri Dax, they brought her back, and she's more of a, uh, in more of a command position, just like she is in in the novels. And they put mm-hmm. her in the uh, reddish reddish maroon uniform that we saw in in All Good Things that. Beverly Crusher had, so they kind of grabbed that idea too. So it was it was really cool, and um, you know, 
I'm sure everybody in the audience was like, oh, can't you just do it? You know, like just do that script, do that, do that series. That would have made a, a really great, you know, live action thing. But it was still cool that they put their heads together, um, you know, and, 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 uh, you know, showed us what they would love to do if they had the budget and the green light from, from uh, Paramount and CBS, you know, because uh, it was it was very you know it was inspiring and uh, and it even featured the death of one of the characters. Ah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I don't want to I don't want to spoil that, but you know it 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 was a catalyst for the the story, you know, uh, and that kind of teaser that was that was just within the teaser would have been incredible um and it brought everybody together and in including molly who's now grown up and she's in starfleet molly was the little daughter of keiko and uh um o'brien you know uh kalamini's character um and uh the and i completely forgot there that uh that uh cassidy yates you know cassidy cisco would have was was pregnant at the time when Cisco disappeared in the in the final episode, you know, and yeah. that that Jake has a, a younger brother, and Jake's br- younger brother turns out that he's in Starfleet, you know. So yeah, that sounds like an awesome but, uh, sequel to uh, Deep Space Nine. Deep Space yeah. Nine was one of my favorite uh, shows. Um, I really liked how it was different. Yeah, they, they, a good portion of the of the uh, documentary focused on how they all felt that they were the stepchild, that they felt that that their show was not as well received because of the differences, because it was on a space station, um, because of various things, and you know, I sat there and I I, I don't remember you know that being how I remembered it, you know, like when, when I, when challenger, when deep space nine came out, you know, only speaking for my pocket of fan friends, you know, but I remember we crowded our, my small little bungalow for the premiere, um, uh-huh. you know, crammed, crammed as many people as possible. We were enthralled by the show. We, we, you know, we didn't have any doubts whatsoever that just because it was on a space station, that it wouldn't be exciting Star Trek, that it would be, that it wouldn't be cool. Um, and, and we did like the characters. We were, you know, I think we had less doubts about Star Trek Deep Space Nine than we did as fans with Star Trek Next Generation, yes. because at that time, you know, um, we, we, we had a preconceived, and you're, you're part of this generation, you know, when Next Gen came out, I think we were excited, but we also were like, well, we kind of wanted the Captain Sulu series. We wanted to see yes. an extension of the Star Trek that we grew up with and that we knew. We just wanted it to continue on. We wanted everything. We wanted the, the feature films uh, with the big names, and we wanted maybe some of the little names like Sulu and, and a whole new cast, you know, with a different chef. I mean, I think that's what we, and remember George Takei was, was at that time 
pitching that idea. Yes. So we were, we were falling in love with that idea. We were like, yeah, do that. And, you know, when Gene came out with next gen and, and, you know, had his own, and, and we were jumping 79 years ahead. We were like, yeah, no, we're not so sure about this. And, and, as, and, and this is funny coming from me because the USS Challenger's ship, you know, our symbol, our ship, you know, is a galaxy class. But when we first saw the galaxy class, we thought, oh, this looks a little too oval. This, you know, the nacelles are smaller than the saucer mm-hmm. section. You know, we had a lot of doubts. But with Deep Space Nine, we were like, this is exciting. This is a... Um, you know, well, of course, this was years after we realized, wow, next gen's actually great. You right. know, like first season was a little shaky, but we kind of knew that would be better. And even with Deep Space Nine, you know, we knew it was a darker show. We knew it was, um, you know, it it was a complex show, and it was a show that showed us non Starfleet people in key roles, uh, like Kira. Uh, and and eventually, you know, um, Quark and, you know, well, you know, Quark actually was there from the beginning, but characters that were introduced later, like Garrick and, uh, um, you know, a, a lot of the, the non-fleet people, uh, you know, that we right. loved, Lita and Rom and, and you know, uh, we got to see more of the Ferengi and, uh, you know, in a, in a whole different light, I think. You know, but but anyway, getting back to that, the documentary kind of opened with with them all feeling like they were the underdogs, and uh, um, and 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 also some of the ratings weren't exactly what they had hoped for at first. But remember, this was syndicated Star Trek. Uh, um, you know, in 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 many ways a little different than next gen because apparently, you know, the days fluctuated more than, than next gen. Um, I, I seem to remember deep space nine being on Saturday and then later on Sunday. Then, yeah. Know. I remember they switched it around a bit. And I, yeah. I personally, I, I liked uh, deep space nine from the beginning, but when they brought uh, the Klingons into the show, that's when I really, really uh, got into it. I feel they did an oh, excellent job. It was awesome. Um, they also explored in the documentary the, the reaction of Michael Dorn being, you know, asked to come over to, uh, you know, to, to Deep Space Nine and how some felt, well, you know, we, we don't need, uh, you know, Michael Dorn's a great guy and he's a good actor, but we don't need an extra injection of, you know, of anything that we were they were doing well by themselves, but they also came to the conclusion that, you know, adding Worf was a, was a, was a great thing to do uh, Mm -hmm. and added a whole other element that, that was, was great. And they even explored the transition of Dax, you know, of, 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 you know, the Terry Farrell, who ironically now is married to Leonard Nimoy Jr., um, you know, I, I think it's Adam Nimoy, <laughs> so I'm making stuff up here. But, uh, um, but but she, you know, the story always was that she quit the show, the season before Deep Space, you know, before the show was going to end, and its seventh season, um, knowing that 
you know, she'd be out of work and she took an opportunity to be on Becker, which was a network show and which would, you know, get her more money. Uh, but apparently that wasn't exactly the case, according to the documentary, where the contracts were up and they made an offer. And I think she wanted it to be negotiated a bit differently. And they ran out of time. And, you know, both the producers felt like, well, of course she's going to settle. And she thought, the op- you know, the same, that, of course, they're going to, I guess, offer her more money. And then the time elapsed, and they realized she wasn't coming back. And then we got, you know, they had to, they, they cast, uh, you know, an actress, you know, Esri, who, hmm. who felt she was, you know, walking into, you know, what was she walking into, you know, uh, a familiar position. But, but she felt welcome after a while, you know, after the first couple of episodes, and you know, and, and Terry Farrell was was kind of crying at that point, you know, uh, in in the documentary about what what had happened, um, you know, and neither side, you know, could really blame, you know, it, 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 they both kind of blamed each other, but at the same time, they couldn't argue uh, within the documentary. So, you know, but uh, but it seemed like everybody was was happy with 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 the production of the documentary. Um, Will the documentary you know, be available on DVD at, at some point or Blu-ray? Yes. yes. It will be coming out in, in, uh, in DVD and, and Blu-ray uh, and for sale. And, um, you know, I'm sure it'll be available at, you know, to, to, I'm sure the, it, it might be available through, you know, one of the streaming services, this is, uh, you know, mainly CBS all access. Um, but, uh, you know, Armin Shimmerman was very frank about, you know, the, the, as was Rene Obajua about the makeup. Uh, and uh, there was a very funny scene, you know, like the, what it required to, 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 to uh, be put in the makeup, how, how many hours, you know, you'd have to get to the set of like some ridiculous hour, like four in the morning, and it would take like three hours to do, and then you'd start to shoot. Um, they had, they, there was a funny scene where Sean, oh, and I'm messing up the name here. The actor who, uh, played, um, the Grand Nagus, um, yes, yes. he laughed, he said, he said, in all the years that I've worked, I've never slept during the, during a scene or, you know, while I was on the set <laughs> and they showed a picture of him sitting as the Grand Nagus um, is sitting in some like big throne chair and he's leaning over and apparently he had fallen asleep because the, you know, the, the, the hours that they did, they sometimes had 12 to 16 hour days and, you know, uh, but, you know, and they said they, they loved what they did, but they, you know, it, it certainly at times took a toll on them and they, there was a very funny scene. I'll, I'll give this this away since I've given it away so much. Um, that uh, Colomini apparently loved to complain about when, you know, and he has no makeup, but they would spruce him up, you know, his hair, his 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 face, you know, the lighting, and he he you know he would often come in and complain about it, and Michael Dorn would like look at him like, Colin. 
look what I have to go through, basically. You know, like, shut up, you know, they used a few choice expletives in the documentary, you know, of him, you know, saying say what a pain in the ass column was, you know, like, you know, when, when Michael Dorn sits there without a word, you know, and, and, you know, for hours gets his, his, his light bulb on his, his forehead, you know, and everything. So, but, uh, but we, we loved it. Uh, Emily and I, and, and, you know, other members who went, uh, we we all enjoyed it. It was it was such a wonderful love letter to Deep Space Nine. It brought back so many memories, um, and and uh, you know, not a visitor, Kira. Uh, you know, she looks the same as she did then, except her hair is this striking white, gray, silver. You know, and I think she, it makes her look even better. You know, she she just looked incredible. Um, so, uh, but, so that was, that was a big part of, of this month. Uh, and, um, as far as, you know, our Starfleet adventures, uh, my, my chapter, we enjoyed, a uh, a, a nice round of miniature golf on, uh, on Saturday, <laughs> a few blocks from here. Sounds uh, like fun. we, yeah, we had a wonderful time. We we proved that we're not exactly great miniature golfers, but uh, we didn't care. Uh, we were doing better by the end, and and then we uh, we did what we always do. We ate afterwards, so <laughs> right on the premises because they have a have a have a little cafe there. So um, it it sounds awesome. Uh, now, last time we talked about discovery and how season two. Uh, has kind of like connected it more to the original track and kind of revitalized uh, and refocused uh, the uh, uh, the show. Um, is it true that April and Spock are leaving at the end of uh, uh, this season, going to the Enterprise? And if so, what's the next season going to yeah. be about? Yeah, Captain Pike, uh, played by Anson. Sorry. Yeah, Anson, played by Anson Mount who did a remarkable job. Um, and uh, Ethan Peck, the grandson of Gregory Peck, um, uh-huh. who played Spock, both of whom, both actors, will be at shore leave in July, and we cannot wait uh, because awesome. they have done such a great job. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, they were only signed up for one season, but they had done such a wonderful job, and uh, Rebecca, Ramon, what I, you know, uh, she played number one. She was also the original uh, Mystique in the X Men movies. Oh wow! Um, she, um, you know, she was she was number one. She played M- M- Mitchell Barrett's, you know, character. They did such a great job that fans of really would love to see uh, a series based on. Um, the the early voyages of the Enterprise, you know, before before the Kirk era, you know, with with Spock mm-hmm. as just the science officer, with with Pike, with uh, with Number One, Number uh, One, yes, you know, with with maybe uh, Yeoman Cult, which uh, was in the was in the cage, but wasn't in the series as far as I know. Um, you know, basically, I, I don't remember if you if if you might remember the comic book. 
uh, when Marvel Comics had the rights to Star Trek, uh, had licensed remember, the rights yeah. in the in the 1990s. Uh, they had a, a comic book series called uh, Star Trek The Early Voyages. And yes. uh, it, it focused on uh, Pike and Number One. And uh, I forgot if the series was set before or after Menagerie, you know, the events of, Men- of, of the cage, rather, you know. Um, but... Uh, uh, they were they were very good stories. The only thing I didn't like was that that towards the very end, they introduced uh, they sort of had a continuity era. They introduced Admiral April, which first of all, April wasn't an admiral; he was a commodore, um, from what we remember from the uh, the uh, animated series, uh, and. Um, Remember the episode from the animated series where April comes aboard with his wife, who was in a, you know, they were ambassadors at this point in time, and they go through a, a white hole as opposed to a black hole, and they start de aging, and the entire crew, the, even, even Spock, they turn into children, you know, because they're, because of the, the, that universe that they've crossed into. And so April has to, uh, take command at, towards the very end before the ship goes through the, the portal. Uh, and he has the option of staying young and, and reliving his life. But he and his wife choose to instead just go back to their, their old age. But he, but he was a Commodore. It was listed. Um, but my issue with the comic book story was that, uh, one, they portrayed April as a very hard-nosed, almost patent-like character, which was not April at all. You know, if if, if within the the novels and that animated show, you got the feeling that he was a very, um, you know, he was a good captain, but he he thought things through. He wasn't this. He wasn't hard-nosed. Yeah, he wasn't. You know, um, so. Uh, but anyway, it was. Uh, you know, if they did something like that on CBS All Access, I, I would be very happy, and I think a lot of fans would be happy uh, to see that. But you know, right now we're we're happy just to see that Picard is moving forward, that we're getting another season of Discovery. Uh, there's this very strange, uh, you know, cartoon series from the people that produce Rick and Morty, uh, or at least the animators. Yeah, that's cartoon. Yeah, it's a comic. You know, it's more of a comic cartoon, though. It's not like what we saw, you know, Filmation do for Star Trek, the the animated series. It's going to be, you know, there's going to be some comedy thrown in. I I don't know really how it's going to work. Uh, I heard that it's being patterned after, uh, you know, the episode Lower Decks in next generation, basically the characters we don't get to see, you know, uh, the, the, the grunts, the, the, the ensigns, the, 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 the officers who are, you know, um, newbies onto the crew and, and, you know, what their life is like, you know, so it might even have a more of a, the Orville kind of feel to it, you know, some joking, some, you know, things like that. So I, I, I'm guessing that's what it's, 
Yeah. So it could be a whole other take on it. It, it. I don't know how slapstick or cartoony it will be, you know, how silly it will be, or if it will just, you know, have a humorous edge to it. I, I you know, we, there's no release date on that, um, you know, just yet. I don't, I don't think we're going to see that. Uh, certainly we're not going to see that in 2019. So we'll probably see that maybe, maybe sometime in 2020. So, well, there's but, a, lot, uh, a lot happening on the horizon. Do you know what uh, Discovery Season 3 is going to be about? Uh, well, you know what? Um, I, I know that uh, from the, the finale, you know, and I don't know if you've seen the, the season finale. No. But, you know, and, and to be honest, I haven't either, but I, I know enough about it, and it's embarrassing for me to admit I didn't see it, but my wife and I want to would do a special binge watch of the last few right. episodes we haven't seen. So, um, yeah, and I know I mentioned this last month and, and nothing's changed. We, we did see another two episodes or so, but we, we really, we were waiting for a nice rainy day, which we thought we would get this, you know, Sunday, but Sunday was beautiful. So, you know, we didn't want to be inside, you know, we, we wanted, we, we went out and about, you know, outside. So um, anyway, I know that, that discovery ends up in a different time, hmm. you know, sometime, sometime in the future, sometime beyond what we have seen. So they are now in a way kind of correcting what a lot of fans like myself have said, that the show looks too, you know, too futuristic for the time period it was set. Well, they're setting it in a different time. So I don't know if that will be temporary and they will have to come back uh, or or what it will, you know, they they might be freed up to use their spore. Remember, Discovery's spore warp core thing was so a prototype. Yeah. So and and there has to be a reason why it was never mentioned or or you know installed in other starships. So maybe they've corrected you know that issue as well by by moving Discovery forward in you know. In, in time. So um, that's all I know. Um, and also there um, has also been talk of uh, a Section 31 show. I don't know if you can base a whole show around Section 31, but I guess we'll find out. Um, Michelle Yeoh, who played the captain uh, in the first season and has also appeared in this season, but she's the mirror mirror universe version of that character uh, who has now been recruited to be an agent of section 31. Um, you know, I guess they could do, you know, certain uh, do shows like that, um, which I find interesting because section 31, as we saw it in, in deep space nine, where the, where the whole concept came from, um, because we didn't see it in, in Next Gen, we saw it first in Deep Space Nine. Um, wasn't exactly uh, a, uh, a a good organization. They were they were no. manipulating, you know, and that's what we see in in in, in uh, Star Trek Discovery. That that Section Thirty One, a, a very shadowy agency, you know, that's not officially sanctioned by the Federation 
where Starfleet is doing all these things to manipulate um, uh, governments and things like that. So, um, you know, I, <laughs> I'm not sure how comfortable I am with that idea, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how it is. the Star Trek franchise. Um, and, and, you know, getting back to the documentary, though, um, they did say one thing, and that applies to, to Discovery as well, that there, that if Gene Roddenberry had lived, there are certain things that we might never have seen uh, happen within Deep Space Nine, and that was one of those things was the Dominion War, and yeah. um, because he, he was very... Uh, dead set against having a war of that scale. But as we saw, the Dominion War was, was spectacular. I mean, it added yeah. so many rich storylines to it. And another thing they said was that uh, Gene might not have approved some of the things like uh, in the Pale Moonlight when when Cisco um, has to compromise his... his uh, principles and manipulates goes along with manipulating the Romulans into becoming allies because the Federation at that point was uh, losing the Dominion War and they needed, you know, they needed the Romulans to come on to their side. Um, so we may not have seen that kind of openly, you know, uh, accepting, you know, the corruption part that, that Cisco went along with. Um, and Section 31, I don't know how much of a concept Gene Roddenberry would have, you know, how, how he would have, uh, if he would have approved of, of that idea. But um, but we'll never know. And, and, and no. you know, as no, much as Gene was the, you know, great bird of the galaxy, Star Trek definitely evolved uh, during Deep Space Nine. And, now, and is continuing to evolve in, in discovery. Why did they not do the um, anthology show? Because uh, that sounded very fascinating to me to have like, uh, um, you know, like chunks of uh, time that are explored throughout the entire uh, timeline where they can go back and forth and uh, just set these like short stories within uh, um, the Star Trek universe. I think that would have been an awesome show. I would have liked to see that. Yeah, yeah, I very much would have, would like to, to like for them to do that sort of thing. I I guess they thought that since Discovery was successful um, enough that they would um, they would continue on with it. They you know they have the sets for that and and there was there was uh, a desire to, of fans to see those characters um, move forward. Um, but I, but I know they were also kicking around, as we've seen, you know, other other stories like an anthology, like the Picard series, like you know, like Section Thirty One. There was even the idea that they would do uh, a con, you know, as in continuity thing, um, a, a series based on, I, I guess, a prequel. You know, a prequel showing, you know, him. Uh, during the eugenics war, you know, and, and leading right up to his escape from Earth in the uh, Botany Bay with his, you know, 
Um, you know, I, 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 that was being kicked around. I don't think that they've decided to, to move forward with that particular idea, but uh, I think Gary Nardino was supposed to be who did, uh, who produced Star Trek II. I, I think, you know, um, I think that was his, his idea. Well, with, along with our family. But, uh, yeah, so yeah. I, I think we really probably look at ways to bring new new types of storytelling to uh, to Star Trek. Yeah, I, I'm get, I'm very excited about all the new Star Trek because uh, um, although uh, my involvement has been much less than yours, I, I really love. Uh, uh, the Star Trek universe and the unfolding uh, story, and sometimes it seems to lose its way for a little bit, but it always returns to its uh, core values, uh, which are yeah. that we have a positive uh, future in which we've overcome a lot of the uh, things that are currently plaguing us, uh, that we kind of outgrow finally and we move forward. And that is something that needs to be heard, I believe, still uh, to this uh, day. Um, I've been working on the storyline for our um, little chapter here. And in addition to Starfleet International, uh, there are two other Starfleet clubs now that are also interacting with us um, Mm -hmm. down in Florida. Uh, So uh, um, I've been reviewing old uh, track and I still want to do the mythological gods. So that will tie everything together in terms of why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, but I've also been watching the old shows uh, from those anthologies with uh, uh, time travel and the queue. And uh, I'm having a lot of fun playing with those ideas. So I think that uh, ultimately and eventually um, uh, ours will be set like, uh, you know, we have to deal with things like uh, uh, godlike uh, beings who are not part of the Earth's mythology uh, and also, uh, you know, the, the temporal core. <laughs> that tries to maintain the timeline. So uh, that sounded like a lot of fun. I bounced it off of some of the people. They liked it. So I think that's what we're going to wind up uh, uh, doing when we uh, move forward with things later in the year. Um, also, I don't know if I shared this with you, but at the Creskill Public Library, uh, we're starting a uh, science fiction night. Uh, so uh, it's going to be science fiction and also like, a, like strange science. Um, so we're mm-hmm. going to be showing retro sci-fi movies. We're either going to start with Planet of the Vampires or Plan 9 from Outer Space. Uh, we're going to encourage people how to, you know, to dress up. Uh, and we're also going to have talks on UFOs and time travel and things, you know, all sorts of weird science. So uh, I'm looking forward to that starting. We're still playing with that, but that should be, uh, by the end of the summer, that should be up and running. Oh, that's great. That sounds like so much fun. And I'm I'm sure it fills a void for things in your area that will just they'll they'll uh, be attracted to. Even if they're not yeah, track, I think, I think so too. Rather, you know, as much into Trek and they're into sci fi, you know, this this will be a great outlet to them and a great way to introduce what you're doing to them. You know, like yeah, and that's what it's really all about. It, it really is, and uh, um, Star Trek is such a positive influence. It's it's a myth that arose within our culture, like the superheroes arose within our culture. 
And mm-hmm. I believe that uh, in, in, in a few thousand years, just like now we look back on the uh, um, world uh, uh, cultural myths and uh, we learn about them and they're still very vital and uh, important uh, to us psychologically as well as uh, culturally. I think uh, uh, Star Trek, Star Wars, Superman, all of these modern myths will also survive into the future. Uh, and uh, be recounted uh, even at that time. Oh, I totally agree. You know, look, we we still have movies today about, you know, Hercules (laughs) and and the gods of Olympus and Thor, you know, and, and, you know, um, know, I mean, how many movies, how many different uh, adaptations of of, of Hercules alone? Plus, uh, You know Zeus, and and then of course we have the superheroes who owe them their their own you know background to the gods, like Wonder Woman with the Greek gods, yeah. and or with the Norse gods, and you know uh, that that will never you know in the Egyptians, and you know that will never go out of out of style. You know you know it, it, the the myths just continue, the legends just continue to grow and grow. You know, out of the original uh, legends, you know. Oh, and so, they're, they're uh, still alive after thousands of years, and they, they have a life of mm-hmm. their own. They're, they're, they exist longer yep. than we do, and uh, w- through them we tell our tales of the human condition, and uh, uh, we get to uh, um, explore um, the human experience through these stories. It's wonderful. Absolutely. Um. Now, um, I would like to, uh, by uh, year's end, uh, meet up with you guys uh, somewhere uh, and attend one of your meetings uh, when we're up and running a little bit more. Um, How would we go about uh, doing that? Oh, um, we'd love for you to come to, to any of our events. We have our our barbecue in July, but uh, you know I don't know what your what your plans that that weekend are. Um, but we have you know we we meet every first Sunday of the month at the Seaside Heights Community Center, um, mm-hmm. and uh, at uh, at you know at one o'clock, of course, you guys are welcome to come what, during you know during even our CSAT meeting at, at twelve. Cause, you know you're you're a part of us, and we'd love to you know. Uh, meet with as many of you as possible. Um, That'd be awesome. So there's that. There's you know, I'll I'll we'll be posting a complete list of our of our activities. We've we've got uh, even later this month. We've got our our my goodness, it's it's coming up this uh, this coming Sunday. Our um, this month is just blowing by fast, just like April did, and just like March yes. did. Um, we have our traditional kickoff of the summer season uh, with a picnic on the beach of uh, Ortley Beach um, on 8th Avenue, Ortley Beach, where we just, it's very low key. It's not like our barbecue where we, you know, barbecue and, you know, have it at, at, at my place in the, in the backyard. We just go up to the beach and, uh, you know, we bring a, a beach chair, you know, because we never know what the weather might be. And you know we we kind of spread out a blanket and we all have this like picnic up there, 
um, you know, bring our own food and, uh, you know, like a be it sub or chicken or whatever, um, you know, and then we kind of just shoot the breeze um, up there. And, and then there's, if it gets too breezy, you know, literally gets too breezy, uh, or if the weather is, is not uh, favorable, then, then we come back here and, uh, you know, uh, watch either Discovery or, or some other, something else on, on the TV here, uh, you know, and it's a way to bring us all together. Um, just Sounds for awesome. some low-key fun, you know. So, um, you know, that's, that's, again, just what it's all about. It's just bringing everybody together and uh, sharing our, our mutual interests. Which is awesome. Uh, and I miss that uh, aspect of it. Uh, I remember when uh, I was very active in uh, track. Uh, we used to have uh, meetings at uh, my home or Dennis's home uh, once mm-hmm. uh, a week or so. And uh, at the height, we were publishing a, a zine. Uh, we were running an, um, an email uh, role-playing game. Uh, we were doing all sorts of, like, a guerrilla theater, you know, dressing up and uh, going to, you know, the, to the strangest places and just doing uh, guerrilla theater. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. And it, it was uh, a very creative uh, time. Uh, and I met very many uh, wonderful people, uh, including yourself, during that time. And uh, uh, although not all of them are in my life, some of them do occasionally uh, pop up every now and then, and we reminisce about uh, uh, the days of old. Well, uh, and, uh, uh, during our meeting this month, I had a nice surprise. We uh, we had a visitor from uh, uh, from our past. We hadn't actually seen him in a while because he went off to school and he came back and you know it had you know, had a busy life and you know um, but but he came back to one of our meetings and uh, you know he's going to be you know rejoining Fleet now we were Facebook friends we we kind of kept in touch but you know he hadn't been active and now we've kind of persuaded him uh, through through his reconnection with another former member who has rejoined us, you know, uh, unfortunately we're going to lose him. He's moving to, to London, uh, mm. in July, but, uh, but we'll, we'll have him back. So, you know, it, it's funny how people will, you know, move on to other things, uh, other things in their lives. And then there's sometimes they, they come back, uh, which is always nice. You know, that he was going to be 40 something. I'm like, Oh my gosh, it made me feel old because, you know, <laughs> I remember I still have this mental picture of him when he first joined as a kid, uh, you know, uh, which I, I may have shared on this story that uh, we had a, a diner uh, around here called them at that time. It was called the memory lane diner and had several names after that, but you know, it, it had a nice uh, theme to it of, Photo, you know, paintings and stuff of you know Marilyn Monroe and James Dean and Elvis and you know it, it, it Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby. You know, it, it, it had a nice little theme of, of the past, which is why it was called Memory Lane Diner. Well, after one of our meetings, even back this has to be back in the the nineties because the member in question, his name is Damien, was very young and. Uh, 
you know, his, his mother would drop him off and with us. And um, after, after the meeting, which was at that time held in Ortley Beach at the now non-existent Ortley Beach First Aid Squad building, because it's been leveled and it's gone, and we had moved way before that anyway to Seaside Heights. But um, we, we did what we do now. We, we go after the meeting. We're like, okay, where are we going to go to eat? So we went to the Memory Lane Diner. Damien was so excited about whatever was going on, he forgot to tell his mother that we, you know, I mean, she trusted us, but she was <laughs> a little frantic, you know, that, uh, you know, this might not have been the time of cell phones or at least cell phone use to the, the point where we know it now. So uh, his, his mother came to pick him up and we were all gone and she didn't know where he was and stuff, but that's only part of the story because, uh, we we had connected with you know we had visitors at that meeting and they came in the form of a of a Klingon club uh, and they came in in costume and uh, I think I knew that they were going to you know crash the meeting so we a number of us were also in uniforms uh-huh. so they joined us for the Memory Lane Diner. Uh, and, of course, they, they weren't going to get out of the costume any more than we were, you know, that we had our uniforms. So we there we go. We walked right into Memory Lane Diner, and they just stared at us like, oh, oh, my, you know. Uh, and they said, we'll put you in the back. <laughs> you know, like, basically, uh, we don't want our regular customers to see you people. <laughs> but so that's... We took up the whole back room area, you know, which uh, on a Sunday afternoon didn't matter much anyway because there was nobody, you know. But I just thought that was amusing that they were like, uh, we'll, we'll put you in the back, you know. And that's what I'd like the next uh, show to be about because uh, I have stories like that too. Well, you know, basically, uh, we used to go to bars, we used to go to restaurants, we used to go to all sorts of places, and uh, there were plenty of these tales of how people reacted to us uh, dressed in our uh, Klingon garb. Uh, but our time today has come to an end. Thank you, Bob, wow. for a wonderful uh, and informative uh, segment, and I'm looking forward to our next conversation, uh, and I wish you well. Oh, it was, oh, as always, it was great to be here, and uh, you're a wonderful host, and I look forward Thank to, you, to our You're a wonderful uh, guest and a wonderful friend. You take care now, my friend. You too. Um, we're going to listen to a, a brief uh, song, and let's see if I can find one uh, here. Um, I guess uh, there's something here called... Um, Tom song, so we'll listen to that. I've never heard it before, so hopefully it will be enjoyable.
Olympus. I'm Hercules Invictus, and the second half of our show is dedicated to the scholars from the edge of time, Nicholas Dyack and Michelle Brittany. Greetings and welcome, my friends. Good evening, Hercules. How are you? I'm incredibly awesome. How are you, Michelle? <laughs> I'm doing very well. Monday evening. And uh, you guys have a lot of exciting uh, things uh, to report. Uh, where will you start? Because <laughs> there's so much uh, that you, uh, um, so much of awesomeness that you have to share. <laughs> yeah. So um, Nick and I just got back from StokerCon 2019. That's mm-hmm. the for Writers Association's annual conference. Um, this year, it, it moves around each year. So this year it was held in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan. Um, it was their, I believe, their most successful con thus far. Um, so uh, that was very exciting. There was lots of people, probably over 400 attendees. So, um, oh, that's great. And nice. Yeah, nice blending of uh, individuals that are fiction writers, nonfiction writers, academics, all coming together for a four-day conference. Um, uh, Nicholas and I uh, are the co-chairs and co-founders of the Anne Radcliffe Academic Conference, and of course we've, you know, talked about that um, or mentioned it a number of times over the, the past several months, and so we had a, um, our conference was held Thursday afternoon and Friday morning, and we had, I believe it was approximately 15 or 16 uh, presentations. Um, we had a few people that unfortunately had to cancel due to, you know, um, travel issues, like there was actually a storm going on. So we had a few people that couldn't make it due to the weather or illness, you know, various things. Um, But for those that did attend, we had a very good um, showing of a lot of different subject matter uh, within horror studies, Um, you know, that that kind of expanded from, you know, classic fairy tales, uh, dialectics of uh, classic literature, um, and making comparisons to the horror, horror studies, um, psychic detectives, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, gothic feminism, um, what it means to be a hero, um, and just uh, so many different uh, presentations, and they were all very, very good presentations. Uh, they sound awesome. 
Yeah, I felt like I took something from each one of them. Um, they were really quite good. I'm very happy with that. Um, then I was on a panel for horror comics on Friday afternoon, um, and that went uh, quite well. Um, it was kind of it was nice. I'd been on this panel before um, last year, and it was nice to be on it again and have other panelists this time. Mm-hmm. So. And we had, um, I think, two fewer. Uh, so instead of seven people, I think it was like five. And so it was a, it was a little easier to have time to, um, you know, provide content uh, when asked questions uh, and share opinions and things like that. So that was actually really nice. Um, sometimes you get panels and there's way too many panelists. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so that that sounds nice. It sounds like a a, a comfy um, convention uh, with uh, a lot uh, to offer the people who attended, and uh, uh, the small numbers, as you uh, you know point out, uh, make it you know like homey and comfortable. And uh, um, I prefer those as well. Yeah, you know, and I'm used to like. Uh, San Diego Comic Con, and of course, you know that's well over a hundred thousand. So it is nice to to attend a conference that's still got that kind of cozy, almost kind of family feeling. Um, mm-hmm. Meet up with a lot of people you know from the prior year. Um, many people that Nick and I uh, run into. This is the only time that we get to see them. Um, is when we're at the conference. And so, you know, that's nice. A lot of people come from, you know, overseas, like we have friends that are in uh, from New Zealand and things like that. So, yeah, it was nice to get a chance to, to visit and, um, you know, catch up with, with friends. And it's grown from, uh, from what I understand. Um, how would you like to see it grow further? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. I I think that I would love to see more um, panels um, in the future. Um, I think that um, free content for people is always, I think, a good thing. Um, one of the things that they did this year, and I would love to see them do it again. Um, in the coming years is they did like um, they did a couple of instances where they did like a retrospective of different uh, subject matter so like for instance the I think it's the great grandnephew of Bram Stoker um, I think his name is Dakri Stoker he did a, a very nice a presentation about Dracula over the last 120 years. And um, that was uh, very fascinating, um, not only to get a chance to see some of that history kind of boiled down into an hour, um, but then also to get uh, an opportunity to hear him talk about, you know, growing up in in a family when was, his first kind of exposure to, you know, Dracula. Um, 
you know, as a as a preteen and finding out, you know, you have this important history to your family um, and how it has impacted his life. Um, Nick uh, was the moderator for a great informative panel on the cabinet of Dr. Kiligari. And uh, yeah, and uh, the panelists each had had some very unique perspective with regards to the film, um, you know, coming from different aspects of the film, whether it was the music or, you know, it was the visuals or it was the, the, the plot of the story. Um, so he really got a, a real nice cross-section of perspective in these, uh, in that um, I believe there was one on Frankenstein, although I didn't get a chance to see it. Um, but just seeing some more panels that do retrospectives I think would be really, really a, a great way to go. Um, of course, would love to see Ann Rad, Radcliffe's uh, academic conference continue to grow. Um, next year, the, the conference is actually going to be in the U.K., um, and it's going to be the first time that it's outside of the U.S. Um, and that's wow. going to be next So I'm, I'm very curious what kind of presentations we'll have, um, you know, what uh, presenters we'll actually get to meet um, that we wouldn't have met otherwise uh, when it's in the U.S. Um, so I think it's going to be interest, a very interesting StokerCon uh, next year. Um, that sounds incredible, and I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to that show, <laughs> to, to uh, uh, vicariously get that uh, experience. Now, you've also started uh, work on uh, exploring um, the Egyptian uh, comic book uh, series over the years, especially the Marvel uh, mummies. Uh, that sounds going to be exciting. Did you talk about that on the horror panel? You know, I actually didn't. This panel was more on kind of like the new millennium and horror okay. comics. Um, so I didn't really spend any time talking about the Marvel Mummies uh, comics, but I am definitely looking to uh, do research and I'm I'm hoping to actually develop uh, a paper from this and um, maybe even a book that would just be a discussion of Marvel mummies. Um, so that's, that's a, a project that I have in mind. Uh, I'll be honest, I, I kind of started down this road, and, and thanks to Nick, um, we were sitting waiting for WonderCon to open, and uh, when we go there, there's a number of vendors who sell comics wholesale and things like that. And um, we were looking at, you know, what comics are there that have mummies in them. And it was really quite surprising to see how many Marvel uh, mummy comics there are. Um, you know, they start. I think one of the earliest ones is the the Living Mummy. Um, I remember that. Yeah, one of the most famous. And that started, I think, with um, 
I think it was Supernatural Tales, uh, issue number five, that uh, The Living Mummy was introduced. And then I think it went 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, 11, 12, and then I think it was 14 and 15 or something like that. So there were several issues with The the Living Mummy. Now what's interesting is that uh, when we were at WonderCon, I have been trying to collect um, that initial series because I want to be able to read all of them. And uh, interestingly enough, issue eight is kind of a unusual uh, issue because of the fact that uh, the new Avenger movie... Spider-Man. Oh, is it Spider-Man? Okay. The Spider-Man movie that's coming out uh, makes reference to potentially the stones that are discussed in the Living Mummy issue number. The oh wow! So um, because of that, issue eight is actually like kind of a, a highly collectible at the moment, and it's uh-huh. interesting because uh, like maybe a year ago when I was at WonderCon. I probably could have gotten the issue for like maybe, I don't know, probably around 25 to $40. And this year um, it was going minimum for about $100. Wow. Because of the storyline. So depending how that storyline will go uh, in Spider-Man, will may push the, that issue as even um, more highly collectible item than it already is, or it'll go back to, you know, being 30 bucks. (laughs) Yeah. Are there any anthologies or omnibuses that have the living mummies? I'm typing that in uh, right now to see if you can find it. Lately, there's just so much, and they're they're so expensive, the comic books, uh, some of them, uh, that uh, I I look for graphic novel collections, uh, and sometimes you can get, like, the whole run uh, inexpensively. Yeah, you know, I haven't actually looked at that, although uh, we were looking and we saw that some of them were uh, reprinted. Um, okay. And I think they got added into, like, other collections, not necessarily omnibus, but you'd find them uh, added into different uh, collections for the different superheroes. Okay. So, like, there were... Uh, mummy stories relating, I think, to like maybe Superman or um, some of the other superheroes. So uh, I definitely have more research to do. I'm just kind of at the tip of the iceberg. Um, mm. But it would be nice if they were in omnibuses or collections and things like that. I haven't seen The Living Mummy in a, in a specific collection. Although, having said that, I know that Fantagraphics has, I think, a Living Mummy story in one of their books, um, and I haven't picked it up yet. Um, so I know that exists. Um, and then IDW last about a year ago, maybe it's almost two years ago now, um, they... Uh, put out a collection of pre-code mummy stories. Oh, so, wow. And that was 
that was actually really cool. And I, I, I highly recommend that uh, for people that are interested in mummy stories. Um, that's a great, um, that's a great collection. Um, there's a very good uh, introductory essay from the editor of the of the book, who talks about the history of the mummies uh, within comics, um, and really talks about some of the pre-code, why mummy stories were able to kind of continue into the time of the comic code, at least for a while. Um, and it's just a very informative essay. I, I mean, it was worth it for that. Um, but the, the collection is very interesting because you get to see um, many of the tropes that were being uh, explored and how, uh, like, the early Mummy 1932 film influenced um, many of the comic book stories, how you'll hear um, about... This one, actually, it's funny, this one came around more recently, I think within like the last year or so, where um, supposedly the Titanic was cursed because there was a, a mummy on on the, the ship. Um, and what's interesting in the IDW collection, there's a, there is a strip in there about the reason why the Titanic uh, sunk was because there was a mummy. <laughs> wow, I, I hadn't heard that one. That's that's an interesting tale. Um, is are there is there like a lot written on it or, or just the reference? You know, there was just that particular comic, um, and I know that um, it came up more recently in one of the. Lectures that I went to listen to at the ARCE group, um, and I'm I think it's a urban legend, um, but okay. I I do need that. Now I collect uh, mummy movies also, and I, I recently came across I found my big plastic bin full of mummy movies, uh, and I have some like really old ones that are silent and. Uh, uh, the Mummy movies, of course, up to the latest uh, Mummy movie. Uh, and uh, now I'm inspired to uh, watch them all. And I remember when I was uh, really into the mummies, uh, kind of like a monomyth uh, started coming into focus, where the mummy um, is someone who has not changed uh, since his time. And then his uh, love interest has reincarnated several times and is no longer uh, who she was in Egypt. So he kind of stalks her and uh, you know tries to get her back, and that kind of, that never works out for him uh, in the long run. But uh, it's kind of like a um, a reflection on that you know staying who you are versus moving on and and growing. Yeah, and of course you know it makes it, it makes sense that the money would still be kind of stuck in that time because yes. he's been you know, asleep for thousands of years versus his love interest who's been reincarnated um, and has, well, let's just say for the sake of argument, has, you know, lifetimes of experiences that has helped lead her forward into a modern era versus him who's still, 
you know, um, in love with her and is seeking her out once again uh, to uh, kind of complete that that love that has been that started, you know, millenniums ago. Yeah, it, it, it's. Uh, I was talking with uh, Bob Bostler in the segment before. We we're talking about mythology and the modern mythologies like uh, Star Trek and Star Wars and the superheroes and how these, uh, I'm sure, will exist hundreds, if not thousands, of years uh, from now uh, as our mythology. Uh, and uh, uh, they're they're mirrors into which we can gaze and see ourselves. And uh, the mummy tale or the mummy tales are certainly uh, a mirror and uh, makes you pause and uh, think, where are you, you know, like holding on to things and seeing things in a way that's no longer accurate. And what do you need to let go of and where can you stand uh, to grow uh, and to move past uh, something? Oh yeah, definitely. I think the one thing that I that uh, I am concerned about, though, with the the various mummy movies and comics and things like that, is um, how the original myths become distorted. Yes. Um, for instance, um, I'm reading uh, Peter Milligan's series called Egypt. Um, that came out uh, in 1995, 96 time, and it's about a it's a seven issue series, and he uses some of the mythology uh, of ancient Egypt, but he also plays with it and twists it, and you know makes it work for his story, and you know while he is using ancient Egypt as a vehicle in which to uh, explore his main character, Vincent Mee, um, who is a modern-day Englishman who ends up back in ancient Egypt. The story really is about the main character and his growth and coming to terms with the death of his sister. And so... You know, the the emphasis isn't on trying to get, you know, the mythology correct um, as much as it is, well, I I know the mythology, now I'm going to twist it to work with my my story. And so, you know, as a historian and as a, you know, as a scholar, it's important to be able to to mediate um, those literatures and be able to say, Yes, you know we can play with them, but at the same at the same time, let's look at it and what does that what does that say? As you said earlier, what does that say about our time today? How do we use those myths to define who we are today? How do we use them to differentiate ourselves from uh, you know myths of you know yesteryear and and things like that? So it's a, it's very interesting. Yes, it, it, it definitely is. And um, I, I wrote a paper on this once uh, when I was in Empire State uh, College, which was part of SUNY, that uh, on distortions in mythology and how mythology always lives like in the popular culture. 
uh, a lot of the myths uh, that uh, we have that survived survived in the forms of uh, public entertainment, like plays. Uh, and on uh, uh, the cartoons and comic books of the day, uh, pottery of all sorts like vases and cups and, uh, and so forth. So uh, these stories are always uh, told to appeal to the audience at hand. And then they act like nets and that some people are fascinated by uh, whatever is uh, uh, being uh, played out in the uh, artistic, uh, um, the artistic uh, presentations of uh, people uh, will take that as an invitation to explore the reality uh, behind the myths. It'll bring them to the scholarship. Uh, where they can get to the roots of these uh, stories. So um, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, uh, a lot of my paper uh, focused on the ring cycle and how Wagner popularized it and how that brought a lot of people uh, back to uh, the original Germanic uh, mythology for good and for ill at, at that particular time and how it uh, you know, influenced the course of history. But uh, Rod, Wagner's ring cycle is not, a, a fair representation of the myths. Uh, it was greatly reworked and made to appeal to people of his day. Well, I would I would love to read your paper if share it with me. I think that would if I can find it, uh, I will definitely share it with you. Uh, I have maybe a dozen boxes of writings over the years, and it's in one of those, and I haven't come across it yet. But as soon as I do, I will definitely share it with you. I'd be honored. I, I would really appreciate that. I would love to read it. Wow, uh, our time has passed already. Um, and thank you so very much, Michelle. I've missed you guys, and it's great to be catching up. Uh, I'm glad that you're having an awesome uh, time and that you're uh, being very uh, productive artistically. And I can't wait till our next conversation. Oh, me too, Hercules. It always seems like a month just, it goes quickly, but at the same time, it's like, wow, it's been a month and I, I feel like it's been so much longer. Yeah, same here. <laughs> well, thank you so very much. I'm going to play a quick song. Uh, and uh, there is I'm, I'm playing new songs today Which is very unlike me Usually I stick with the same Like half dozen uh, This one is called Spoonful And it's by Mojo And then we'll be back With Nicholas Dyack Coffee. Could be a spoon full of tea. 
just a little studio precious love Well, that's good enough for me Men lie about little Some of us die without little I would cry without little Whole world fighting about a food for that food, that food, that food for food, that food, that food for Could be a spoon full of water Save you from the desert sand With just a little spoon of that phone and five Gonna save you from another man Men lie about little Some of us cry without little Most of die without little Whole world fighting about a spoon for that spoon, that spoon, that spoon for Whole world fighting about a food for that food, that food, that food for Hercules Invictus, and now we're entering uh, the second segment in Scholars from the Edge of Time, which means we'll be speaking with Nicholas Dyack. Greetings, Nicholas. How are you? Uh, good evening, Hercules. I'm doing very well, and yourself? I'm doing very well uh, as well. I'm speaking with you guys at uh, time flies, <laughs> and then the it, it, our conversation's over way too quickly, um, but I'm glad that you're here today, and I'm looking forward to, to hearing all the things that you proposed in your email. Uh, no worries. I look no forward to talking with you. It's uh, like Michelle was saying, you know, a month goes by quick, but it also goes by very slowly. So we'll yes. just look forward to the, you know, the uh, these segments. So you were at StokerCon with uh, Michelle. What was your experience of StokerCon? Uh, it was it was a very uh, positive one. So this is the the fourth year that uh, the Horror Writers Association has done StokerCon. Uh, previously, mm-hmm. they'd done their the uh, I think it was the World Fantasy Con or World Horror Con, and then they they just kind of split away to do their own thing. Um. But, you know, we went to the first year, which was in Vegas, and we had fun, but there really wasn't much for us. You know, uh, the Horror Writers Association is kind of first and foremost, you know, for fiction writing. And, you know, we're not exactly fiction writers. Um, not yet. Right. I'm definitely not. Um, so, you know, we started working with uh, the leadership, you know, to bring more academic stuff in. And, you know, Michelle and I would come from a background at presenting at the um, – the uh, Popular Culture American Culture Association conferences. And, you know, our experiences with that conference, we just kind of, you know, reworked it to a, a horror-centric academic conference to, to be a part of their Stoker Con, and that they readily agreed. And, and so this year was our third year doing it, 
and uh, it was it was tremendously successful. A, a little stressful to begin with, just because we we did have quite a number amount of cancellations at the last minute. You know that you you can't take it personally, but at the same time you're like, you know, man, you know, we get the point. Come on. Um, but no, we had two days, uh, six panels, and I don't remember how many presenters we had, but. It, it went by really, really great. Um, that Thursday was our most successful day in terms of attendance. And, uh, some of the papers presented were just marvelous. Uh, one of the papers by uh, Kevin Wetmore was about scarecrow cinema, uh, you know, movies that involve, you know, scarecrows and how, you know, scarecrows, they don't, they don't scare crows. They scare people. So that was a great presentation. Uh, another person gave a presentation on protoplasmic horror, so things like blobs and kind of slithery, gooey things. Um, one person you'd probably be interested in, his name's Anthony Gamble. He did a presentation on the genesis of myth, and he's kind of uh, interested in how myths form, and he was uh-huh. applying it in this case. So, uh, he thinks George Romero's Night of the Living Dead is an example of a contemporary myth-making. So that was a okay, insightful, uh, yeah, presentation. But yeah, his forte is also antiquity. So we'll probably have to get you in touch with him. He'd probably be someone you'd love to talk to. I'm, I'm sure. Um, Michelle gave a presentation on the comic book series Taliban, which is a a space horror comic, and that went well. And then I did my Lovecraft and the Carnivalesque presentation, and that went humorously well. Um, just because of funny slides. Okay. Um, so, so our academic conference was, was successful. Through, through the rest of the convention, we had random people coming up to us and, you know, just giving us congrats, saying how much they appreciated what we were doing. And so that's, that's very, you know, a nice self-esteem booster. Um, the other kind of highlight was beforehand, we were asked to present the, uh, the Bram Stoker Award for the nonfiction category, and so mm-hmm. that's a that was a pretty nice honor. Um, it was yes. live streamed. You know, Michelle and I we went up there, we gave a little short speech, and you know, named off the nominees and got to uh, you know call out who won. Um, a book I was in was nominated, but alas, it did not win. Uh, which book? Oh, the Uncovering Stranger Things book by uh, edited by Kevin Wetmore. I contributed okay. an essay in that book, uh, Synthwave Music. But uh, I'll take solace in this. So last year, Michelle was nominated uh, for this award, and I had an essay in her book. You know, this year, Kevin was nominated for his book, and I had an essay in it. So I'm going to say I'm a good luck charm. If I'm in your book, you'll get nominated <laughs> for an award. <laughs> However, you're not going to win. What's that? That is a good thing to remember. <laughs> so, uh, let's see. Any other things? So just, you know, severe jet lag and staying up until like midnight and 1 a.m. at the, you know, going to the hotel bars and just talking to other writers. Uh, it's a lot of fun, but, you know, at the same time, um, you know, we had to get back home to our cats and, you know, you, uh-huh. you leave these conferences feeling a little energized, so you're kind of anxious to get back and start on your own projects again. And But no, it was, it was a great experience. Grand Rapids itself was a, 
it was an interesting town. It was gray and gloomy the entire time we were there. We didn't really get to explore it too much. Um, I, I will say this is a, a kind of a funny story. Uh, okay. So Grand Rapids, you know, where Amway is, and you know, Amway is that multi-level marketing company. Yes. You know, call it, call it what you want. You know, um, you know, there might be some uh, shady stuff there. Regardless. Uh, one of the nights I went out with some other scholars, went to a bar called the, the Pyramid Scheme, and I just thought that was the most, you know, uh, ironic naming for this bar in this town ran by Amway, but like kind of subversive, like a, you know, a secret bar on a, you know, far off planet that's under an imperial rule. So I, I thought that was a gas. That that is that is incredibly funny. Uh, the pyramid scheme, and th- that too synchronistically fits into uh, uh, Michelle's uh, um, passion for mummies as well. It does. She, one of the things was is we went to a presentation by Doc Doc Ray Stoker. He's one of the you know descendants of Bram Stoker, and he gave this hour long PowerPoint presentation on you know the evolution of you know, Dracula over the years and some of the research he had been founding. And, you know, Michelle's eyes became big as saucers saying, you know, I could do that with mummies. And so I, I hope she does. It was a really cool presentation. I know Michelle could pull off something similar with, uh, you know, mummies and pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, No, that's great, I, and I'm sure she can too. Uh, uh, mummies need a voice, and uh, Michelle is an awesome expert on that uh, subject. So she would make a a, a great uh, um, representative for uh, mummies, both fictive and uh, historical. I agree wholeheartedly. So yeah, overall, it was a it was a great convention, uh, one of our most successful ones. Um, uh, in a couple more months, we'll see the uh, our book come out on horror literature. We saw uh, a draft of the first cover already. It needs a little bit of tweaking, but we got okay. ISBN numbers, all that stuff. So, you know, th- things are going kind of smoothly on that front. That is fantastic. And uh, you had mentioned that you had uh, continued in your studies of uh, uh, Westworld and uh, Peplum. How is that coming along? Well, I've got a due date of June 15th, so it's got to come along a little bit quicker on my end. But, um, no, it's come along pretty great. Uh, last week, I watched Westworld. This weekend, I watched Revolt of the Slaves, and I'll get to that in a second. And then I've got okay. a giant list of slave films that you generously provided me, and I actually ordered a, a couple off the list. Uh, hold on. What did I wind up getting? Magnificent Gladiator, uh, The Slave, Son of Spartacus, and uh, The Vengeance of Ursus. And I'll tell Great how movie. I'm hoping the title in it. Um, I've been reading a book called Slavery, Antiquity and Its Legacy by Paige Dubois. My, my general thesis here is that Westworld I mean it's not it's not a peplum movie per se it's a weird western but you know it's got four sequences of Roman world and to me that that tells me it's peplum adjacent right. and you know what 
happens, you know, in Westworld is, you know, the robots, they get a virus and they revolt. Um, and so when I look at that, I'm like, wait a second, you know, that's, that's, that's just a classic sword and sandal slave uprising film. It's just uh-huh. done with robots. And so that's kind of my thesis. I want to explore that a bit more. And so I've been reading uh, yeah, Slavery and Tickling Its Legacy to find out more about, you know, what is the slave film? You know, uh, how did slaves kind of operate back in uh, Greek and um, Roman times? And are they operating the same way in this film? And so, uh, so one, so my textual background is this page to ball book. And second of all, I just want to do a mise-en-scene uh, analysis that compares and contrasts Westworld to some of these slave revolt films. And, you know, so far they have very similar imagery. Mm-hmm. So like uh Examples. Uh, so I watched Revolt of the Slaves over the weekend. I didn't realize that that was supposed to be a, a, a Christian film. When I look at the, um, you know, the cover, I see Wanda Fleming with a whip and things are exploding behind her. I'm like, oh man, this is gonna be action packed. Uh, no, it's it's actually a biblical uh, epic, and um, it's good. I just I didn't I, I expected you know, uh, just that cover. I just thought it was going to be pandemonium throughout. It's not. <laughs> but there, there's a couple scenes in there, though, that are replicated in Westworld. Um, so, for example, you know, about 25 minutes into the film, you know, the, the Christians have been kind of rounded up and they're being escorted by Roman guards. And, you know, this lead slave and some of his cohorts go and uh, intercept them. And a brawl, you know, breaks out in the forest between slaves and guards. And, you know, it's in a nice little wooded area. And, that basically matches the third sequence in Westworld where, you know, the the robots go amok and they start stabbing the tourists. Hmm. That's um, an interesting uh, comparison, interesting observation. Um, I, I, my uh, wife and I ordered uh, the original Westworld and Future World, and I found uh, okay. copies okay. of the uh, television series that was short-lived. Uh, and uh, it seems that... Uh, um, on the new, new reimagined Westworld, the drawing from the, this older material, just as uh, Battlestar Galactica uh, uh, reimagined, drew from the original material as well. So uh, we're looking forward to watching the foundations upon which uh, this new series is built. Yeah, I haven't seen the new series. In fact, uh, you know, when the call for papers for this book came along, it was to focus on the new series. And, you know, I pitched the idea, well, I haven't seen the new series, but, you know, I wouldn't mind talking about the older movie and the peplum elements in it. And, you know, my, my pitch got accepted. So uh, I'll be contributing to a book on Westworld, the TV series, by talking about the film. Uh, oh, I know awesome. when I did my research online, you know, there isn't going to be a Roman world in the, the Westworld TV show. It, you know, that kind of struck me as interesting because there's actually quite a few articles where the, the showrunners were hinting at Roman world might happen. Uh, it's exciting that it could happen. Well, it turns out it's not happening. And, you know, it got me thinking, you know, what's, what's the cult appeal of Roman world from the original West world? And that was one of my other ideas for this paper. I mean, Roman world is only in West world. It's less than four minutes or five minutes of screen time. It's barely in the film. You know, not mm-hmm. much happens there. Uh, but, you know, there's this cult appeal to it. 
And, you know, that's one of the other things I want to dive into is why is that? And I think I have an answer, and that's, you know, we're living in a, you know, watching uh, movies and television shows like in a, you know, a post-300, post-Spartacus, you know, uh, uh, viewing. I don't know what the word I was looking for there. But, you know, the original Westworld, you know, they're showing the debauchery of Rome, but not very well. You know, it's very, very quick. It's mostly alluded to off screen and by a character's dialogue. Well, here you watch stars as Spartacus and, you know, they're full frontal of everything. It's extremely gory, extremely violent, extremely sexual, extremely exploitative. Mm-hmm. I would know. I have a couple chapters in my book about it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, people had watched, you know, Spartacus, like, wait a second, we just watched Spartacus, and wow, you know, blown away at how over the top it is with its sex and violence, could could the, could Roman world and the New West world be like that? And so I think that's kind of some of the expectations, is we've now seen, you know, not uh, a depiction of Rome held back, you know. I, I think prior, you know, Rome, you know, the again, the debauchery is kind of, you know, subdued, and you know, not very rated R-ish, unless you watch, you know, Tinto Brass's Caligula. But, you know, people view that as a pornography, first and foremost. Right. Not like as, like, real entertainment. But Spartacus is, you know, a real entertainment, apparently. Um, and so that's where I think some of the cult appeal is of Roman world is, could we have a Westworld's Roman world in the new series, but, you know, input up like Spartacus did? I think that's what people were looking for. And, you know, it's not going to happen, but... That's just kind of my my other thesis for this paper is, you know, the, the neo-peplum uh, trends that have been established, people are looking forward to seeing them in the new show. Right. Um, I think that uh, it would be uh, good for them to include the Roman world uh, because of uh, what you said. Uh, we have entertainments now uh, that are not as... Uh, um, censored as they once uh, were and all of those elements have made those shows uh, very successful so uh, I think that if there was a west world uh, a Roman world rather uh, I think it would be very successful in the type of world that the uh, uh, show portrays and I agree wholeheartedly and you know if anything that the the current neo-peplum trend shows is you know, neo-peplum movies are kind of in a downswing. You know, we haven't had a real good hit since, well, 300. But the television neo-peplum has been very successful, from Spartacus and Rome and Black Sails, that, you know, it sounds like television is kind of the medium now to explore it. I think Netflix even released another Troy or something. I haven't watched it yet, but, you know, they're still diving in. But, but, you know, maybe television is the medium to explore, you know, antiquity right now. And maybe Westworld missed its chance. I I believe there's a samurai world in it, which is, you know, cool sounding in the titular Westworld. But perhaps it was a missed opportunity to explore more, you know, antiquity. Yes, I agree. Um, And uh, it's a shame if they let that opportunity uh, pass. Uh, There is a third season of Westworld uh, coming, so uh, who knows? Um, But uh, I haven't read any reports that they're planning on exploring uh, uh, the the Greco-Roman world and the peplum uh, genre. And it's unfortunate because, you know, one of the things when I was reading Paige Dubois' book is she's talking about, 
you know, uh, the role of slaves back in, you know, Roman times, you know, aside from, you know, the economic factor, playwrights used slaves in their plays to tell a point. You know, slaves became kind of a, or characters, I should say, slaves, became blank characters to help drive a point or tell a story. Uh, I see that kind of like synonymous with um, zombie films nowadays. You know, a zombie is, you know, you could project almost any sort of uh, meaning onto a zombie. You want to talk about colonialism, you want to talk about race relations, you want to talk about um, technology, modernity, whatever, you know, zombies have become the perfect vessel for those metaphors. Well, you know, Roman playwrights didn't have zombies, but they had the characters of slaves, and they did the same thing with it. Um, I, I see that in Westworld uh, as, you know, these characters, they're, they're blank slate robots. You know, they're not just there to fulfill desires of the tourists. They're here to tell a point. And, you know, Westworld has a variety of points. Uh, you know, the horrors of technology. Um you know, the hubris of man, you know, what, who is us to, you know, play with these folks. Um, again, a, a missed opportunity, but, you know, even though it's like, again, four or five minutes of screen time, it, there's, there's stuff there, and I'm, you know, I'm right. unpacking it, and I'm having fun doing it. And so my next steps are, you know, just how I, like I did with uh, Revolt of the Slaves over the weekend is, you know, compare and contrasting, you know, looking for similar scenes. I'm hoping to do that with... Uh, the movies I prattled off uh, earlier that you had suggested to see, okay, you know, are there sequences in these classic uh, sword and sandal films that are replicated in the few brief scenes of uh, uh, Westworld? So, so far I'm one for one. Right. Um, I, well, I look forward to reading what you write as always. And uh, it sounds like a very interesting topic um, and uh, well within uh, my great interests um what's next after this exploration uh are you and michelle uh, writing any uh, are you pursuing your uh, uh passion for tiki's yeah i'm hoping that's my next project uh you know again i try to tackle one or two projects at the same time um i think my next project will be the uh you know, a tiki project, be it uh, uh, Lovecraft and tiki or something else with tiki. But I, I really want to do something with tiki. Um, you know, this past weekend was a huge tiki event over in Palm Springs, and you know they had tiki scholars there. And I'll confess, you know, I want to be kind of, you know, at the forefront of that as well. Um, so that might be one of my next uh, projects. You know, I keep my little bulletin board of uh, ideas to to do. And, you know, I, that might be my next, you know, what's calling me. Uh, at the same time, though, uh, I do have a, an article on Sword and Planet uh, stuff I need to get uh, completed over the summer. I pitched it to a website and it got accepted, and I've started work on that as well. Basically, you know, the, the peplum elements of Sword and Sandal films, uh, Sword and Planet books, I'm sorry. Um, so that, I mean, that's already a project started, but, you know, you'll see that pop up uh, in the next couple months as well. That, that sounds interesting, because I, uh, I love the Sword and Planet uh, genre as well. Uh, I've always seen it, as many have, uh, as an extension of uh, Sword and Sandal and Sword and Sorcery, uh, and it shares well, very, very many elements of those genres. Well, what I'll do after this call is, and I think I sent you some before, is, you know, I'm part of the uh, 
the amateur press, uh, the esoteric order of Dagon, that's you know yes. ran by S.T. Yoshi. Uh, the newest zine I did is I, I presented my research in this so far, and so the sword and sandal elements of uh, I looked at uh, Lynn Carter's uh, you know Callisto, uh, mm-hmm. the Tower at the Edge of Time, of course, Sojan the uh, Warrior. Warriors under, uh, oh, man, uh, I can't remember them all off the top of my head. Well, anyway, I did write up uh, my research so far, so I would love to uh, send you a copy of it. Oh, great. I'd love to read it. But it's just the, the er, you know, it's early draft. I still have, you know, seven more books to go through, and that will be, you know, submitted probably in August. So, yeah, so Sword and Planet and Tiki stuff. I kind of have some really weird interests. Yes, you do, but that's what makes you uh, interesting. <laughs> I have many weird interests uh, myself, uh, as you know, uh, and I'm glad we sh- I'm glad we share some of those uh, interests because I really look forward to our conversations. I do too. I always still like hearing your your tales of uh, you know, uh, you know, twenty some odd years ago running in New York and. You know, I brought this up on Facebook, so this is a complete, you know, side dialogue. I just got done uh, reading a, a, a an advanced uh, copy of Nick Mamatas's book, uh, Sabbath, and it's about a, a warrior from, a, you know, the 10th century, you know, being teleported to 2016 to fight the seven deadly sins, and it was a fun book, but there's that part I'm reading, it, I'm like, dude, Hercules had these adventures before. <laughs> Yep, those so were when fun that comes uh, out, times. What's that? Those were fun times. Well, I would definitely recommend the book to you. I did an interview with Nick Mamatos talking about the, uh, you know, the book Sabbath. So that might be a fun read for you. But yeah, yeah you know, just sure. the. Can you send me a link? Okay. I can well, definitely send you a link. That is uh, phenomenally great. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, you would make an excellent uh, spokesperson for all the things uh, you talked about. But if Tiki is where your passion is currently taking you, uh, I can see that happening. Uh, there aren't. That's an obscure enough uh, topic where you could very, very easily become uh, the mouthpiece for it. It's you know that's something I've talked about before. Is you know I still feel like I'm trying to find out what my uh, my niche is, you know, what I'm the expert on, you know, that if someone brings up the topic, they could say, oh, well, that's Nick right there. You should totally, you know, reach out to him. He knows this stuff. You know, uh, I, I'll never be like, you know, like the sword and uh, sandal guys on, you know, Peplum Paradise or anything right. like that. But, you know, I could still carve my way with other topics. Yeah, I, I will. I will. My the extent of their knowledge is uh, phenomenal and uh, very impressive. I uh, I don't think I have enough uh, years left to become as uh, learned as they are on that topic. So I'm very content to uh, send people their way um, because uh, it, it is amazing the uh, information and the fellowship that you get on uh, uh, Peplum Paradise and a few other uh, sites. But, you know, and I know we're coming up to the end of the hour, but I do take solace in, like, you know, those folks are really good at what they do, but, you know, their specialty is the classics of the 60s. You know, right. my specialty is what's present day, and, 
you know, I'll, I'll take solace in that no one else really is writing about present-day peplum. And, no. you know, uh, since I'm kind of the only one doing it, you know, I'll take a – yeah, I'll take a little bit of pride that at least I'm cutting some, you know, uh, you know, leading the pack there, you know, becoming an expert there, I guess, you know, by virtue of being the only one so far. But, you know, it's, that's kind of humbling as well that hopefully other scholars will come along and, you know, pick up, you know, from what I've written. I, I know exactly how you feel. I've been encouraged. Uh, um, and again, I have to thank you uh, for making the suggestion and a few other people suggested around the same time of getting published in anthologies. I believe I've published in 10 of them so far with the 11th coming out soon. Uh, and because of yeah. my extensive uh, anthology work, uh, I've been asked to uh, help with the reissue of a book by writing an introduction and a few chapters uh, opening and closing uh, you know, the book. So that's a phenomenal uh, thing. So again, thank you for suggesting it. That was that was a great suggestion. No worries, you're no welcome. Worries. I'm so happy to see uh, uh, you know see your bibliography growing stuff. And I was just informed that we have 90 seconds. So thank you so very much, uh, Nick. Uh, you're an awesome individual with uh, awesome and eclectic uh, interests, and uh, I wish you the best in everything that you do. Oh, I appreciate it. And again, congrats on uh, your anthology work. I see your, your Amazon uh, author page just growing and growing, and that is awesome. So you need to get yourself a vanity shelf so you can start displaying your work on. Uh, next time you will tell me what that entails, and I will certainly take your advice. All right. Well, you have a wonderful evening and a great new week, sir. And you too, my friend, and I look forward to our next uh, conversation. Cheers. Cheers, Nick. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. <laughs>